Welcome back to Rules of the Arena podcast. I apologize. I've been gone for the last couple months. Uh, this life and work have been busy, and it's just been a zoo. And unfortunately, I had to put a few things on the back burner for a little bit, but do not fret. We do have new episodes of ROA and No Stray Left Behind that are going to be coming out here soon, working on getting some stuff in the pipeline for y'all. But this week, I'm excited to say my guest is Stephen Murray. He is the author of award-winning Chapel of Love, Return to the Chapel of Love, Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II, and Discreetly Yours. Stephen joined myself and Grandpa Ben from Las Vegas, and we chatted about him changing careers over from the computer technology side out into being a self-published author and moving all around the world as a growing up as a kid. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, with that, I'll shut up and let him do the talking. Just a, more than just a, uh, uh, what you call it, promotion. It's, so I skip, I went from part-time to full-time to assistant store manager to sales rep. And so I skipped that store manager spot and I need to jump back into the store manager to kind of check that box so I can move farther up the food chain. So, oh, gotcha. Climbing the corporate ladder. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) It's about as turnkey as it gets because the team that's at the store right now, they've all been there for two years to four years. And so they know the customer base and they are, it's going to be huge for me transitioning to that and making meeting all new faces again. (laughs) Oh, so can't argue too much with that. No, well, doesn't sound dull. That's for sure. But it's just right now the in-between stage of trying to find somewhere to live that is going to be the death of me at this rate. Yeah, well, it, it seems like you've been on a carousel that just hasn't been stopping. It's right. just like going round and round and round and yeah. you can't get off for five minutes. Right. That's what it seems like anyway from the, from the brief emails that I've got from you. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my response time on Podmatch went from average of one day to now I was just looking at it says one week. I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> i got to get back on that. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't just put it on hiatus for a short while until you got the rest of this sorted out. Well, when we started talking, I assumed that I would be going to be staying in this position for another year. And it was no big deal. And then out of the blue, the powers that be give me a call and say, hey, you should really do this. It's like, oh. Okay, <laughs> sure. Here we go. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be in about a month or so. Once I get everything settled down and smoothed out, it'll be fine. It's just from now to then. And I'm excited um, looking at an area where I can actually turn the extra an extra room into an actual studio instead of having to use my dining room as a studio right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> Which Ben remembers. I do. When we accidentally, <laughs> I do. Ben came up, uh, was that two years ago already? Two and yes. And, a half? and uh, I accidentally least. forgot to hit record. I had the recorder prime, but not actually recording. <laughs> we like an hour and a half in. <laughs> and then he made us do another hour and a half. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> well, no, I bet have it, having all the equipment in your dining room makes your dinner parties unique, I would imagine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's been kind of expanding over the last year. Uh, started with yeah. just a little tabletop recorder with two input mics on it to now I have, the, as you can see, the microphone. I have a soundboard floating around somewhere, but and then three monitors now. 
And I used to heckle my producer who's in the actual studio about two hours south of me uh, about being lazy and not doing anything. And now that I'm doing his job and my job as host, <laughs> I've had to eat a lot of crow. <laughs> um, so given where you're at right now with everything that's going on, typically after I've been on a podcast in my monthly newsletter, Mm-hmm. I say, you know, here's a link for people to listen. And then I'll say, if you wish to appear as a guest on this show, please email, you know, whatever the yeah, email address yeah. is. Do you want me to do that with yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You're, you're happy great. to still take guests, yeah, you know, yes, won't be sir. through podcasts, it'll just be through my newsletter. Yeah, know? no, that that's perfect. I can get, okay. once we get off uh, offline, we can go over all the contact info and stuff like that. And uh, and the release date, everything. So easy enough. Sounds cool. I suppose we should probably start at the beginning. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Murray. It is Stephen, right? It's not Stephen. I didn't screw that up. That's right. Stephen. You got it right. Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Self-published author, uh, joining myself and grandpa Ben Finley from all the way from Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mind just want to introduce yourself a little bit to the folks? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me as a guest on your program, and I'd certainly like to thank your listeners for tuning in. Um, As you can tell, even though you said I'm from Las Vegas, I'm not from Las Vegas. (laughs) I happen to live here. It's that New York um, accent, right? (laughs) (laughs) I was born in uh, England, and as a child, the family moved to Southern Africa, what was then Southern Rhodesia, actually, and we moved around quite a few countries in Southern Africa, you know, Basutland, Malawi, uh, South Africa. And uh, when I finished school, I went back to live in England and I got the offer of a job in Los Angeles, California, and I cast caution to the wind and um, moved there. And I lived there for a few years and then moved to Las Vegas, where I've been for the last 18 and a half years. Uh, my career has been in the computer industry. I've had a partnership for the last 39 years, and we're just winding it down now as we sort of start approaching retirement and fun years. Uh, and that's when I started to write books. And I'm now the author of four self-published novels and a fifth one coming out hopefully this month. Perfect. Awesome. So how old were you when your parents decided to pick up the family and move down to Africa? And what was the decision behind that? Just tired of the dreary England days? Well, I think back in those days, they were, you know, Britain was encouraging um, families to go to the the Commonwealth countries. And uh, I think they just thought it might be a better life. Uh, I was seven years old at the time and, it was a different world then. You know, you can jet set around the world now in less than 24 hours. In those days, it took my dad three days. And we followed by boat, and that was a two-week trip to Cape Town. And then on a steam train, no less, not a nice high-powered electric train, <laughs> on the good old steam train, all the way through the Kalahari Desert in South Africa up to uh, what was then Salisbury. It's now Harare, but um, it was then Salisbury and uh we just grew up there and we, we didn't really, I think as a child, you don't you just take those things in your stride. You're not aware that not everybody else is doing it. You just think everybody's moving, shifting around the globe. And we just happened to shift to Africa. 
um, that's the way it was. So was it a bit of a big culture shock? You know, at least you're, you know, you're seven years old, so you're not exactly uh, cemented into the, your, your way of life quite yet. No. Um, no, as I said, I think we took it all in our stride. On reflection, I think we had a much better life growing up in Africa. It was much more outdoors. It was much more healthier. Um, wasn't quite like we, or certainly wasn't like what I imagined, you know, when I heard we were going to Africa, all I'd learned at that tender age in school was that, you know, it was mud huts. And I figured that I'd be looking out the window and seeing an elephant in the garden kind of thing. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Not even back then it wasn't. Um, it, it's more the perception, you know, when I went back to live in England, it was amazing the perception of people living in Africa because I was asked, you know, I was shown a donut and somebody said, you've probably never seen this before. This is a donut. <laughs> and, you know, in the middle of it, you'll find some jam. And, you know, those kind of comments I'd get a lot of. Um, That's, you, know, you know, people point out, they say, this is a laundromat. You know, you go and you take your clothes in there and there's a little machine you put coins in and they'd be explained like, and I thought, I wonder if these people think we sort of wash our clothes on the mud rocks by the stream or something like that. <laughs> no. So it was more of an education when I went back to live in England that when, when people, certainly at work, when they they picked up an accent then, an African accent, mm -hmm. and um, they'd say, where are you from? And as soon as I said Southern Rhodesia, that's when it would all start. You know, well... <laughs> This is this and this is that. This <laughs> range. So going back to England, I imagine you you went up that back there for university, or were you finishing up still? No, um, Gordon, I never actually went to university. I'm just <laughs> a plain old high school grad. Uh, I went back when I left Africa. Uh, I was laid off from work, and there were four of us that were laid off, and. I was only like 17 or 18 at the time. And we just decided we'd all go to England and share an apartment and see if the work's better there. And the other three backed up for various reasons. And I just went by myself. And at least I had family there. You know, I went back to London. And then it was in the late swinging 60s, you know, all the Beatle rage and miniskirts <laughs> and Carnaby Street and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was, an exciting time to be in London. It really was. But it was an exciting time to be anywhere, I think. But yes, that's that's true. This is a good point, Ben. But London in and of itself would have been something like completely different, any of the major European cities. But well, they say if you tire of London, you tire of life. And I I truly believe that to be the case because London really does have everything. Mm -hmm. It just does. But you kind of get tired of the, the bad weather, that, that drizzling rain that goes on from, from August till like March of the next year. You just don't see the sunshine. It's just, it's not heavy downpours. It's just this drizzle that just goes on and on. And I was used to growing up in the sunshine, you know. Right. And, um, and of course, the taxes in England uh, <laughs> kind of uh, 
kind of push you out the door. And, you know, when I got the offer of a job in Los Angeles, the idea of palm trees and the Pacific Ocean, these nice sunny beaches and everything, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I'd always wanted to come to America anyway from as far back as I can remember. It was always... You know the land of opportunity, and what I still think I think it still is, mm-hmm. but it certainly was when I was growing up. So, how old were you when you got the opportunity for to come to LA? Twenty five. So, by twenty five, you've lived on three different continents. That's correct. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I came here on my ad with two suitcases and five hundred dollars. <laughs> that's how green that that's the that's the advantage of youth. You don't think things out. You just take these plunges. That's one hundred percent true. I can, yeah. It's it's not exactly the ideal circumstances in which to start a, a new life with just two little suitcases and right. um, five hundred bucks in your pocket. Right. By the time we you did. pay for first and last month's rent, it's all gone. <laughs> That's we share that in common. So we both uh we've both moved to LA at 25 with whatever possessions we could manage. I stopped <laughs> my, my car and drove for three days, but uh and then we both left. <laughs> 25. I, I can brag that I lived in three different counties of Wisconsin. That's that's about it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I like Wisconsin. I like Milwaukee. Oh, I think area. Samson in the zoo's gone by now. I would think, hasn't he? The champion gorilla, the gorilla know. that lived for God knows how many years. His name was Samson. He was kind of like an icon. I should know. I have family down in Milwaukee. Uh, I haven't been down there in oh god, it's been years now. Yeah. It's been. Yeah, well, me and Ben met in college. Uh, he actually graduated. I I paid to go there, but the I like the college lifestyle. It was the whole going to class and the homework thing that didn't really agree with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can a, relate to that. Yeah. Um, I hate We're, to say this, but I still think the happiest day of my life was on the last day of boarding school. And I didn't have to go back. And it's probably a sad reflection on my life that that's the happiest thing. But that's how much I hated it. <laughs> cool. It didn't agree with me either. No. So once once you're in LA, is that when you got into the computer software business? No. I, I was taken on from high school uh, in Africa with a company called NCR. I don't know if you're still familiar with them, National Cash Register. It's an American company. They're based in Dayton, Ohio. And they've morphed now. They used to be in computers. Now, if you go into a lot of banks, you see those ATM machines and what have you. You'll see the NCR sign. But they originally started out, if you look at these old television shows and you go into a shop and they've got the cash register with a little till, those, that's what NCR started out doing. And sure. they took me on as a trainee. And when I went to England, I joined NCR there. And when I came to America, um, I was hired by this small group of individuals. They were breakaway employees from NCR, and they were looking to hire computer programmers and software developers and so on and so forth. And um, I fit the bill. You kind of had the the advantage of getting ahead of the the tech bubble out in that area. 
Yes, uh, well, and it's certainly morphed a lot, certainly since the years I've been in it. Um, it's I, I never, ever dreamed that people would have computers in their home and even now computers are being taken away by just telephones. You know, it's all in the hand You're now. Right. And, you know, I grew up in the days when there were these whopping big computers and they had to be six inches off the ground and air-conditioned <laughs> rooms and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I thought then we've gone about as far as we can go and now look where we're at, you right. know. Yeah, I still I miss the the simpler days of not having a cell phone where yeah, we'd have to we kind of had a predestined buddy's house that we'd all always kind of gather at. And if nobody was there, it's like, okay, they're one in four places and let's just drive around or walk around and find them. And nowadays still I'll be in an argument with someone and they'll be like, well, look it up. I'm like, what are you talking? Oh, I have a, I have a smartphone. I have Google. I can do that now. <laughs> the entire history of humanity in my hand. <laughs> there you go. So what drew you to come over to, to Las Vegas? Um, I think California, as much as I loved it, certainly when I moved there, I thought I'd found paradise. I thought I never want to leave here. You know, the, the swaying palm trees and beaches and everything was just the latest and greatest and so big. Everything was just so big and so vast. And as time went by, it just got a little bit tougher to do business, you know, um, as much as I like California, it's not exactly a business-friendly state. And the traffic in LA was just getting so bad. My business partner, myself, we spend like three and yep. we just thought maybe it's time to make a move. And we needed to move somewhere close to California. So if any of our clients had major issues, we could hop on a plane and be there pretty quickly. And, um, I certainly never thought as that I would ever live in Las Vegas. I used to come up here every few months to have a little flutter on the slot machines and um, the roulette tables and go and see some shows and things like that and always love visiting, but I, I never, ever dreamed that one day I would live here. Um, but, you know, as, as you both well know, life takes you on journeys that you never <laughs> right. expect. <laughs> it does indeed. Yes. I went to Vegas for a week uh, back about 2015, give or take, I think, somewhere in there. And my, I had a friend of mine, he was stationed at the Air Force Base out there. It was at uh, Nellis, I think. Yes. So I had the advantage of having somebody that's been in the area for, at that time, I think four or five years. But still, I can't believe I made it out of there in one piece, or at least my liver made it out of there in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> You're from Wisconsin. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But when you get five Wisconsinites drinking on the strip of Las Vegas and you have a, a Badger game on Saturday and the Backer game on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, being the, uh, being in Wisconsin, you know, one of the big, probably the big capital of America, I would imagine your body's probably built up an immunity over the years. Yes. Pickled. <laughs> Yes, pickled immunity. <laughs> but but uh, going back to your experience between LA and, and Las Vegas, how would you compare and contrast to? I've never been to Vegas, um, but I felt I felt like LA was a big culture shock from Minnesota. 
Uh, so I'm really curious about the difference between LA and Las Vegas. Um, I, I really love Las Vegas. I, I like all the entertainment. Strange that may seem, I, I used to come up here every few months, have, gamble, as I said, you know, not excessively, but I used to sort of play around quite a bit on the machines and what have you and enjoy it. Since I've moved to Las Vegas, I don't even gamble. Uh, I haven't put a nickel in the slot machine since I've lived here. And now if I go into the casinos for, for dinner or to see a movie or something like that, I don't even notice the people gambling. Again, it's almost like immunity. Hmm. Um, I, Las Vegas, it's, it's a very interesting city because it's, as you know, we're, we're known as Sin City because of all the gambling and, and it's um, open lifestyle, free thinking policy, if you will. Mm-hmm. And yet it's also the marriage capital of the world. So when you think of it as the marriage capital of the world and Sin City and everything in between, it really is an everything city. And the night, what I like about Las Vegas, even though there's about a million residents here, it's still got a small town feeling about it. Okay. And Los Angeles is just this huge, big metropolis. Oh. And I, I liked it, but it just took too long to get anywhere. Right. You, know, you go out for dinner or something and travel like 10 miles. It could be, you know half an hour, three quarters an hour drive kind of thing. And <laughs> that's what made it frustrating. And I was sorry to leave it in a way, but now we, we've got the business in our home and it's nice we don't have to do all that traffic every day. Uh, it's less stressful. I it's believe that. It's less stressful when you're working from home than when you're sitting in traffic for three hours every day. Right. Um, you know, I think the quality of life here is better. Whether I want to spend the rest of my life here, that's another story. But, you know, right now I'm enjoying everything that it has to offer and the friends we've made. Good. And as an an author, I imagine that you have just about an unlimited supply of information for stories living out there. Yeah, well, I I suppose so. you know, the, the the first book that came out, yes, is about a fictional Las Vegas wedding chapel. Oddly as it as it may seem, I don't do any research on my books. I probably should, but I don't. It's all <laughs> it's one hundred percent imagination. And they always say write about what you know. And I don't. I write about everything that I don't know anything about. <laughs> but I think it's just part of my nature. I like things to be a challenge. If I'm going to do anything, there has to be a challenge in it that that challenges the mind and challenges the brain. It's just the way my brain right. works. So, right. Um, and that um, I'm not familiar. I will plead ignorance. I'm not familiar with your books yet. Gordon tagged me into this at the the last minute, but I'm really curious. With like the, three days, <laughs> <laughs> with the. The breadth of your experience, though, knowing that you don't now knowing that you don't research, but you again, you've lived on three continents from a young age, like you've just seen such a large breadth of life that you've got all this information in your head to to at least be able to draw. on. Well, it's it's funny that you should mention that, Ben, because when I first started to write, 
Um, not only have I lived on three continents, I've traveled to over 40 different countries throughout the world, you know, on all five continents. I've been to Bhutan up in the Himalayas and um, Thailand and, and Hong Kong and Asia and been to different countries in South America and, of course, Canada, Mexico and the United States and here and many countries throughout Europe and quite a few in Africa. And been to Tahiti and Palau in Micronesia. And my first book was really a biography of my travels. I thought, you know, I'd like to put all these cultures and customs down and how they differ from each other and what I learned from meeting the people. And I spent two years writing that. Um, and then I knew nothing about how to get it published. So I decided to try and find out how to get it published went to this writer's group and the guest speaker that night happened to be a publisher. And the first thing she said, unless you're writing fiction, unless it's women's fiction, forget it, nobody's interested. <laughs> and who am I to argue with her? You know, she, that's her profession, that's her job. I had never met any authors. I didn't know any authors. That night I didn't even speak to anybody. I was so shy and timid and kind of overwhelmed with all these creative people and these creative minds and there's me with my little biography and um but i had discovered a joy of writing and i thought well i've got to find something to write about that's going to appeal to women and um that's how the chapel of eternal love came about a book about a fiction las vegas wedding chapel and that was a real challenge not only just writing for women but writing about love and wedding and marriage and all that stuff, and you're talking to a lifelong single guy. Mm -hmm. So what the heck do I know about marriage <laughs> or love or why couples get married, why they come to Las Vegas? But I came up with all these stories and um, and never intended to publish it, but I was talked into publishing it, and not only did that get published, it spawned a sequel. People want to know what happened to the people after they left the chapel. <laughs> and that really surprised me because being a book of fiction, I thought, who cares about what happens to these people? They're not real. But people got involved with the stories, I guess, and I then had to drop what I was doing and come up with a book called Return to the Chapel of Eternal Love that revisits all the couples in their first book five years down the road and where their journeys took them. Nice. So, I totally... Uh, I understand and sympathize with the people getting attached to your like stories. Uh, I'm married to an English teacher who reads voraciously and becomes immensely emotionally attached to, to the characters. Well, that's uh, nice to hear. <laughs> so I think what's slightly more difficult on this one, Ben, is that each chapter is a different couple arriving. Essentially, ooh. that the reader spends a day at a wedding chapel and you've got all these different couples coming and going. They've all got okay. their different stories. So it's not like it's an entire book where you can come attached to the woman or the man or whomever. Right. You've got eight pages, mm -hmm. you know, in a chapter or 10 pages, and then they're all for the next people arrive. So it was very, um, it was very humbling, but very rewarding for me that people did grow attached to these couples. And um, Awesome. Just to <clears throat> to backtrack a little bit, I mean, what drew you to go to that that first conference? I mean, what it seems like you have a pretty well off, well to do career in computer technology side of the house. I mean, 
what was the light bulb or when that light bulb go off of, Hey, I want to write a book. Uh, well, it's a lot of it um, gone as serendipity in a way. Um, <laughs> it was just one Saturday I'd been out shopping and I didn't want to go home and make lunch. And I thought, I'm just going to stop at this little coffee shop. And I went in the, the waitress that took my order. I was just watching her and she had so much vim and vigor and and she was so enthusiastic and she had a lot of people complaining about their food and their coffee was cold and what thing they ordered so long. She was just taking it all in her style. She said, don't worry, honey, I'll be back with it. I'll be back with it. And I suddenly started thinking, I wonder what she's got to be so happy about. You know, she's got all these customers complaining. And I thought how different my life has got to have been to hers. And I suddenly started reflecting as I was just sitting there eating. And I thought, you know, I need to go home and and write about all these experiences in these different countries that I've been to. And that's that's what set me off on the writing. It was only when I finished the the book that I didn't know what to do. And that's when I went, I just did a Google search for a, a writer's group in Las Vegas. And I thought, if I find a writer's group, they'll be able to give me some direction now. And that's, and the, the group that I found, it's only about two and a half, three miles from where I live. Nice. And that's what, what took me down that road. Growing up, I mean, did you ever think, you know, maybe you read... Well, for me, when I read uh, Sherlock Holmes for the first time, when I before I could even see over the top of the table, you know, I had that, you know, of course, you're in middle school and you want to do, I went from being wanting to be a paleontologist to I want to be an author, and then off to the next thing two weeks later. But did you ever think that's something you want to do down the road or was this kind of off the fly? No, it was literally off the fly. And I've often said, you know, one of the countries who spent some time in, um, in Africa is a country, it was then called Basutaland, it's now Lesotho. The capital city, Maseru, only had like 2,000 people in it. That was the capital city. Very primitive. There was only one tarmac road, you know, for one mile, and all the rest were just dirt roads. And I've often joked that if somebody had said to me then, one of these days you're going to be living in Las Vegas and you're going to be writing a book about Las Vegas, for example, <laughs> I would have said, you're nuts. <laughs> but, you know, that's the beauty of life, isn't it? We never know what's around the corner. We never Absolutely. know what's, what path is going to take us in what direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went through teaching history and political science in, in college, and now I work for one of the largest paint manufacturing retailers in the, in the world. Wow. A bit of a 180 there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, so that's your life experience too. You know, who knows? Life just takes you not where you plan always. So since we started with uh, the, uh, excuse me, Chapel of Love and Return to the Chapel of Love, you've also written Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II and Discreetly Yours, excuse me, so what made you want to kind of jump subjects on there? I know you went from oh, from the mainstream fiction over into murder mystery and, and, and crime fiction. And, and crime fiction. Well, I, I think I like the challenge of writing something different every time. And The Chapel of Eternal Love, is, as I've already said, is about people falling in love and getting married. And it's a nice, warm, fuzzy book. And I decided to write discreetly yours, that's the sin side of Las Vegas. 
Uh, <laughs> it's about three very beautiful, elegant, classy, sophisticated ladies, and they happen to work for the most exclusive escort agency in Las Vegas. Fictional, of course, and I have to reiterate, no research is done on this. <laughs> <laughs> it is 100% imagination, 100%. And um, anyway, these three very classy escorts, the guy that runs the agency treats them like dirt. He really does. So they come up with a perfect crime to get rid of him. And the reader follows these three ladies as they plot and they plan, they scheme and they connive and come up with a perfect crime. And you're actually witnessing them executing the plot to get rid of this guy that owns the agency. The mystery part of it is, do they actually get away with it or not? Have they come up with a perfect crime or have they overlooked one tiny little detail that brings the whole lot crashing down? And there's lots of twists and turns in the book after the murder takes place. And so far, fortunately, nobody's figured out the ending until they get right to the very end. And um, the interesting thing is, even though they've killed somebody, are you actually secretly rooting for them to get away with the murder because this guy was such a, a, a turd? You know? mm. So um, that was a fun ride, but it, I can assure you, if ever there was a challenge, that was it. You know, developing the characters of three sophisticated escorts, all with their own unique characters and personalities and different reasons for killing off the, the guy that runs the agency, that was a real challenge. But it's a, it was a fun one. And what about uh, Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth? I mean, how where did that come from and... Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II. As I was writing the Chapel of Eternal Love, my business partner said we should have a dinner party one night for our clients up here. And I said, okay, that's a good idea. And he said, let's do a murder mystery dinner. He said, let's not just have one where we all, we all sit and talk business. Let's do a murder mystery. So I said, okay, but... I didn't want to do one of those box ones. I know you can get them in the boxes and they all seemed a little bit too complicated for me. So I said, you know, if you want to have the murder mystery dinner, you know, you organize it. And he said, well, you're the writer, you write one. <laughs> so I wrote this very short story about a very wealthy Beverly Hills couple celebrating their silver wedding anniversary. And it's a very elegant affair. You know, there's champagne flowing and there's dancing and there's orchestras and women are all dressed up and men in tuxedos. And it's a very elegant affair and one of the people gets bumped off. And when I finished The Chapel of Eternal Love and got that published, no, I didn't have that published at the time. I went and started, I thought I want to expand the story about the Beverly Hills couple, but I didn't know anything about the Beverly Hills mansions or lifestyle. <laughs> so um, I thought, I know I'm going to have the same couple with their dysfunctional family and their dysfunctional friends, and they're going to take them on the Queen Elizabeth II to celebrate. And I had actually been on the Queen Elizabeth II, so I was able to remember the name of the restaurants and the, the, the shops and the, the suites and all of that kind of stuff. And so I just transported onto the Queen Elizabeth II. And as the ship comes back from 
Southampton to New York, one of the party gets killed. And that's how that one came about. <laughs> and the nice thing about the challenge in Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II is, the, it's, I call it a twofer. The, the murder only takes place halfway through the book. You get to meet this cast of characters and they are a motley cast of characters before the murder takes place. And they've all got reasons for really killing each other off. So the first part is for those who like sleuthing is trying to figure out who's going to get killed out of this cast. And then once you find out who the victim is, and that takes place halfway through the book, the second half is, you know, now you know the victim, who's the culprit and why. So I want to try and do something slightly different as opposed to a murder mystery book where the murder takes place right at the get-go and the next 200 pages are spent figuring out who. It seems to work. People seem to have enjoyed it. Well, certainly from the feedback I've gotten anyway. Most of them, not everybody's going to like your work. I mean, that's just right. reality. Mm -hmm. Can't please everybody. No. No, <laughs> but so no, I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there. I think that's that. That is the ultimate path to happiness: is realizing that you have to do what you're going to do, regardless of what people like or don't like, and then you will ultimately find an audience. Uh, th that's very true, and I, I think ultimately, if somebody doesn't like your work, then a lot of the times it's the style. I mean, I don't happen to like William Shakespeare. That doesn't mean to say he's a bad writer. I just don't like that style of writing. Mm -hmm. The nice thing is, though, occasionally you'll, you, you'll get an email from somebody or a letter from somebody that says, you know, your book helped me through a very bad time. I was going through a rough patch or my husband was in hospital and I kept reading this book over and over and it, I found it comforting or something along those lines. And that just all in and of itself almost makes it worthwhile, you know, just knowing that something you've written has moved somebody. That's got to be fantastic. Excuse me. But for me, you know, I, I've never had to written, write anything past a college essay. Uh, and I mean, let alone attempt to write a book. And now you have four under your belt, number five coming out soon. I, do you ever find yourself with writer's block i mean it just seems like it'd be a massive undertaking especially if you're pulling all these characters out of your own imagination do you do you ever have to work through that fortunately not um i i i've never had that i know people talk about it i have trouble like right now i'm having trouble trying to think of what my next book's going to be about I've got a couple of ideas, but I don't know if I can stretch it out into a, a full-length novel. But I dare say once I really start thinking about it in depth, I might come up with some ideas to expand upon it. But more often than not, when I sit down to write, the words just tumble out. It's almost like there's somebody inside your head pushing these words out, and I'm just pounding away on that keyboard and it doesn't stop. And then all of a sudden I've finished and I think, oh, that was exhausting. <laughs> and I go and print it all out and I think, my God, look at all these typo errors and these grammar errors and <laughs> all the question marks have got left out. But um, different people have different styles. I, I know some authors, they say, 
they go to sleep and all of a sudden they'll wake up at one o'clock in the morning and they're just inspired to write and they just go and they they grab a cup of coffee and they plop by the computer and they'll sit and write for eight or nine hours. I'm not one of those types. I'm more structured. I, I try and set aside a time each week. And during that week, I'm formulating the chapter. Who's going to say what? I've got a rough outline, but I'm formulating this character needs to say this and this one needs to do that. So it's kind of formulating in my mind during a week. And that's probably why it just all tumbles out before I forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, you're doing this in tandem with your, you're still a partner in the, the computer technology side. Yes. But so we're, you, as I said, we're winding that down. Mm-hmm. A lot of our clients, are small businesses, and we've had them for years and years. And a lot of them are retiring and they're either closing their businesses down or they're selling them to uh, other companies that have their own computer system. So, we're closing ours down really by attrition. You know, as, the, as mm. the customers leave, we're just not going out seeking new new work. You know, I still want to do some more traveling and uh, want to get involved in other things, you know, some charity work and do some more writing. Mm-hmm. But during the week, I mean, do you have, okay, here my business hours are nine to five and from six to eight, I'm going to be writing or do you just okay, I have a few hours right now. I'm going to just work on this next chapter. You said, you you know, you try to keep it structured. I, I try to keep the writing, the fiction writing away from the regular business hours, if you will, because when you're running a business and you know, when you're at work, you're a different person because it, there's a little bit of tension because <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're working away or if I'm writing, all of a sudden I get an email from a client, panic, we've got something urgent, we need it fixed straight away. And right away, you're, you're tense, you've got to stop what you're doing, get up online and fix and you think, how did this happen? What, what, what do they do? What What's wrong with the program? Mm-hmm. And then it's hard to sort of switch Back. gears. It's hard for me to switch gears from fiction where the imagination's going to the reality of fixing a a problem on a computer. <laughs> yep. I can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. So. <laughs> but yeah, I understand that. For me, like I run a, a, a portable sawmill business and then a, a custom workshop between woodworking and leather. And it's like when I'm working on one project, regardless of which one it is. And I get a call that I know is for the other one. Like I just let it go to voicemail because I know I can't stop and answer the phone uh, and totally disrupt what I'm working on. Yes. It's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to switch gears in midstream, especially if, if the projects are two very diverse and vast, vastly different. Things. Yeah, exactly. It's yes. Tough. Yeah, I can't say that because I get a lot of windshield time for my job. I cover, <laughs> I think, like 12 counties or 15 counties, something like that. Oh, my. So it's like, hey, cool. I have 45 minutes until the next job. Let's uh, make a couple phone calls real quick. Or, oh, hey, I forgot to call Ben about this episode coming up in three days. I should probably shoot him a message. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely that one. <laughs> You mentioned that you went the self-publishing route because you were told that 
if you weren't writing this kind of style book, there's no hope for you. I, is there any advantages to being self-published versus going with a publisher in your mind? Yes. Um, I didn't, um, I didn't go self publishing because the publisher had said, um, nobody would is buying anything unless it's women's fiction. That wasn't the reason. That's what stopped me pursuing my biography, uh, which is still sitting in my computer. I'll probably get back to revisiting it one day. I've learned a lot. You know, you meet a lot of authors, and fortunately, I'm in a critique group. Started out two men and one lady, and now there's, well, for the longest time, there was four women and myself, and they helped out a lot on the women's fiction aspects of things. Why I went self-publishing was um, when I ultimately decided to publish, we found this company that helps with the editing and they help with the typesetting and the cover design and they get that little ISBN number and copywriting. And I thought, what a boon this is. So went to meet this company, um, the, the head of the company, and he said, you know, if you go with a traditional publisher, it could be three years before your book sees the light of day. Well, that alone put me off. I thought I could be dead in three years. And if I'm going to go ahead with this, I'd like to see it published in my lifetime, not posthumously. Um, but also you have to write all these query letters um, to a publisher. And there's so many different ways of doing it. They take a long time to reply. And I just thought, I don't want to wait all that length of time. If I'm going to do it, I'll, I think I'll self-publish and just take my chances. There's advantages and disadvantages, by the way. For me, the advantages are I do own all the rights to everything. I, I had the final say in the cover design. I had the final say in the text. If it's turned into a movie, which I hope they are, or a TV ser miniseries for the chapel books, which I hope they will be, I own all the rights, so I can I have the negotiating power. One of the downsides is those that you have to do all your marketing. You've got nobody behind you. Mm -hmm. And when you get the first book published, and I ordered a couple of hundred copies, I sent out you know, letters to everybody I know, and it's then, now what do I do? And um, it's tough, you know, all of a sudden you've got to take on this marketing. But that, too, is a journey that I never planned, and it's turned out to be a fun one. You know, I've set up my own book signings and speaking engagements, and I've met a lot of wonderful people through it. It's been a lot of fun. And now I enjoy the marketing side just as much as as much as much writing. I, it's enjoyable being on podcasts with guys like yourselves, and you're meeting and you're chatting to people with different backgrounds, different life experiences, living in different parts of the globe. You learn something every time, mm -hmm. and it's fun. It's just, Good. it's just fun. It's something that's blown my mind with with running your own businesses. You get you start because you are a writer, or you're an artist, or you you have a skill set, and then you learn that there's all these other things that you have to do. Um, and and I mean, for me, I'm shit at it. <laughs> but, but it's it's you do find like it one, it has to be done. If you want to be successful, you can't just work away and make a thing and then hope like wish it into, into popular success. 
So you you have to figure out how to how to tackle those other things, and if you find how to enjoy them, like that's even better. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's true. At first, when I thought of doing it and going and speaking engagements, I didn't even. I always felt very nervous when I went and I stood up and I looked at a group of people and I thought, oh my goodness, there's 50 people in this room and they want me to talk for three quarters of an hour. How am I going to do that? <laughs> and I was as nervous as all get out. But after a while, you just learn to deal with it. You learn to relax and you learn to enjoy it. And it's like, you know, the, the company that helped me publish the first couple of books, they said, you're going to have to do book signs. I said, you're kidding. <laughs> they said, of course. I said, who's going to want my signature? I'm going to be feel silly sitting there, you know, signing people's books. And they said, people will want you to sign it and they'll want you to put this in it and that in it and they'll want it to be personalized. And, and it was true. But at first, the, the whole notion of sitting at the at a table signing books, I just thought was silly. You know, it's not like I'm a famous, it's not like I'm John Grisham or Stephen King or somebody like that. Then I could understand it. But Stephen Murray, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's an element of sentimentality in that. Even even with small authors or or I think for myself, uh, if I go to see a, a concert, I'm much more likely to stand around for hours trying to get a small band to sign the CD that I just bought than I am to ever get a, a you know a national act to, to sign something. Really? So it's, yeah. yeah. I have a lot more fun, and, and usually I think the smaller um, smaller musicians are are more interested in talking to the the crowd afterwards too. So it's fun to make a more personal connection. That, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, when I lived in California, I used to go to a lot of what they call these equity wave theaters. They see people with 100 people and less. Mm-hmm. And in LA, because a lot of people want to get involved in the movie and TV business, there's a lot of actors there and a lot of damn good actors too. They were really very talented. Mm-hmm. And they would always come out after the show. And if you were still in the lobby, hovering around, having a drink or something, they come over and chat to you. And you're absolutely right. Yes. Um, yeah, I've been so now fortunate. I'm, oh, go, go ahead. No. I was just going to say that I've, I've had blind luck of running into some rather famous people and not, you know, out of large bands that, you know, I was at either at their concert or at a festival. And one guy in particular, I was talking to my buddy this way and I bumped into a guy on my left shoulder and I go, Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. And I turn around and it's one of the drummers from the band. I go, Holy crap. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But he he had an extra 30 seconds and just took the time to hang around and chat. And he goes, Oh, I'm doing this book signing. Do you want a book? I'm like, "Uh, yes, (laughs) here you go. (laughs) Gotta go. Sorry that, you know, his, uh, his assistants were like, we gotta go now because, you know, of course they're on a schedule, but yeah, like Ben said, and, and we've had the opportunity after a local show uh, to sit down with with a, a songwriter and performer before. Nice. But it's it, it's fun, uh, albeit having the podcast give me an excuse to reach out and annoy people like, "Hey, you should come be on here," or vice versa. And I've had people like yourself reach out to me and ask me on the podcast. And and there's been a few times where I'm thinking to myself, "How am I going to turn this into a good episode?" And then by miracle, it's 
some of the most fun that we've had on the show. Well, you do a pretty good job of marketing because I remember when I read the the little narrative on Podmatch about your podcast, you made it sound fun and you made it sound intriguing. And um, it was like, hey, come back and just sit and chat and have a beer with us and see where it goes. And it just seemed like a fun a fun show to be. It, no. It's been a lot of trial and error, more error than anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how many, how many episodes have you done now? Um, this will be number 71, uh, 20 something with the other show, No Story Left Behind. And then I've sat on, so we're, I'm actually part of a studio, like I mentioned before, and I've sat on j- just about as many shows down there. Um, <laughs> So the, the main talk show that we have is called Department of Offense. And really, it's just a variety talk show where we just make fun of ourselves. And, well, uh, my producer, Casey, who also runs the whole thing, is trying to herd cats, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> Drunk cats. Yeah. <laughs> They're also home brewers. Yeah. There's always that. <laughs> One, once or twice I've attended that. You're right. A good time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and well, you, just, you could probably write a book just on the guests you've had on your program. I would suspect. Well, and I've I mean, that would make an interesting book, I would think, because <laughs> I, think it really I would, would suspect, given the nature of your show, because you're not tailoring it specifically to authors or or singers or dancers or things like that. Yours, you're just reaching out to a diverse group of people, no matter what, what their paths in life are. And right. the, so the original iteration. Very interesting book on the. Yeah, I never thought about doing a book about that. I, I've joked, and I think I've joked with you, Ben and Justin, about doing a biography. And I have the title. It's it's going to be called "Where the Hell Did I Put That?" Because <laughs> that's about ninety percent of my life. <laughs> well, that would be a, that's a grabber title. I mean, if you saw that on the shelf in a storm. <laughs> it's the cover that makes you pick up, isn't it? What's on the yep. cover that makes you pick up and turn around and read the blurb on the back? That would be such a catchy title. I'm sure people would just pick that book up. Right. Think, hey, <laughs> what is this all about? You can, <laughs> you can only do it if Justin and I can provide the uh, the bio pics for you. <laughs> yes, uh, Ben also, he, he forgot to mention, uh, has a photography business as well. And our buddy Justin, who's been on the show, Gotcha. Uh, also as a photographer mm-hmm. and Deepest. between the two of them well, I, I have fact? a cell phone that's as far as my <laughs> photography career has extended so far <laughs> uh, i think my mine's about the same as yours gordon and um even then it's amazing how i can make everything a nice blur <laughs> that, that is gordon's one of gordon's specialties right. <laughs> he's really good at taking really nice photos that you send him for things and turning them into pixelated garbage that, it was not <laughs> <laughs> he was posting all these promo things i'm like gordon why are the photos that i'm sending you blurry so we had to work out some things, but I, I am actually, I'm super curious about self-publishing. Like, what is this process? How do you, you write a thing, but how do you turn it? How do you get it in front of people? And what is even, I don't, I don't understand. I don't even know the first, the beginning. Well, when, when you finish writing your book, 
the first, if you're self-publishing, the first thing you have to do is get it edited, professionally edited. And you can't say, respectfully, Ben, um, you can't say, oh, well, my wife's an English teacher. She can edit my book. She's heard about your book as you're developing it and you're writing the chapters. say, you know what, honey, I'm stuck on this and I'm stuck on that. You're talking, she knows the characters and what have you. It's got to be somebody that is looking at it totally objectively because they're not just going to be correcting the grammar. They're going to be looking for deficiencies in the storyline, um, uh, dialogue that's out of character for the person as you develop them. They've got, it's got to be somebody looking at it totally afresh. So you have to have it professionally edited. Then you have to have it typeset, you know where they go and they fit it all nice and neatly on the page and they put the page numbers at the top or on the bottom, wherever. Then you've got to have somebody cover design it. And then, of course, you've got to go and get the ISBN numbers, the little numbers that go on the back. And you have to register it with the Library of Congress um, to make sure that it's nobody steals your work. After that, it's really all about relationships. You establish relationships, you know. I, over the years, I've established a nice relationship with the three Barnes & Noble stores here in Las Vegas, a couple of the Hallmark stores, they'll have me come in and do, not recently because of COVID, of course, but uh, they've had me come in and do uh, book signings at the Hallmark stores, especially around Valentine's Day. And they'll say, come in and do the chapel books. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of little musical theatres here. One of them's called the Firelight Barn, and uh, they have Valentine's Day events, and they'll call me and say, you know, do you want to come and do a book signing? And what have you, senior centres. I speak at a lot of senior centres and they've had me go and speak over the years on my first book, then on my second, then on my third. And they're on my newsletter mailing list. And when I come out with a new book, they'll email me and say, you know, you're going to come and speak to our seniors again. And we've got a lot of new seniors and bring your books. And um, the one nice thing about the the books that I've written, they're all kind of easy reads. They're fun, easy reads. Even the the discreetly yours, there's no graphic sex or graphic violence. It's implied, and the reader can take it as far as their their imaginations will go. Um, but anybody can read them, and discreetly yours has been very popular at senior centres, believe it or not. And I talk about it and they come over to the table afterwards. They say, oh, we want the one about the three escorts. And okay. <laughs> um, but it is, it's it's all about establishing relationships and thinking outside the box. Um, you can't always just speak at bookstores. And um, one Valentine's Day when I started out, uh, there's a huge big hair salon down the road from us and they do women's hair and massages and facials and manicures and pedicures and all that stuff. And I just spoke to them and said, hey, can I come in and do a book signing here? Um, the day before Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day was on a Sunday. I went in on the Saturday and all these women are going in there getting all glamoured up for their dates on the Sunday and I was set up right by the checkout counter and they'd come over and, oh, this looks like a nice book. And so you, you've got to think of places where you can um, mm-hmm. go market your books. Uh, 
last weekend I had a book signing at a herbal store. They have a they have a bookshelf there. There's a bunch of black space in there, and I was in there and I said, "Hey, you know, you've got all these books on this shelf here. Have you ever thought about having an author come in and do a book signing?" And so, what I'll do for you, I'll promote it on my websites and. And in my monthly newsletter, you'll get some free advertising and publicity out of it. And they said, sure, come on in. So I did. Went nice. in and they set me up with a table in front of the bookshelf and put all my books out, my banners. And But you, you do have to go out and push. And as I said, the key is thinking outside the box and establishing relationships and always making sure that you're giving them something, even if it's just free publicity. You know, you're not right. just taking from them. Mm-hmm. You offer to give them a cut of the books as well. Mm-hmm. Some of them say, no, you know, you handle it all. We don't want to be bothered with collecting the sales tax and all that stuff. Um, but that's, okay. that, again, is the fun part. You just stumble mm-hmm. across places. You happen to be somewhere at a time and... You think, oh, this would be a good place, and you just happen to be speaking to the store manager, and you say, hey, you know, have you thought about having authors in? And what a great idea! Mm-hmm. Got to promote each other, right? So that's where the marketing comes in. I hope that's answered your question. Benefit a little bit long-winded. No, I think I mean that's those are the answers that I'm looking for because I again I have no I, no idea. I, I'm just surprised and rather shocked that they haven't passed his books out at your nursing home yet, Ben. Oh, shots <laughs> fired. <laughs> uh, but Stephen, I'm just curious, uh, when you were looking for an editor, I mean, what are, what are you looking for as an author? I mean, what kind of credentials should a potential or aspiring author look for? Or do you just type in editor on Google and go with the closest one to the top? No. Um, well, the first the, the first book was published by this company that I referred to earlier that had us in. They said, we help people edit books and they come up with a cover design and things like that. They helped me out on the first book. And they've, they've helped me out in different degrees than some of the other books. Um, but you get to meet other authors. I mean, now there's over 100 authors on my mailing list, my newsletter, they get my newsletter in Las Vegas, and they all have editors. So they'll say, oh, if you're looking for a good editor, you know, try this person, try that person. And you read the books that that author's written and they've had edited and you think, hey, I like the way this is all being presented and it's all being laid out. Um, Do you... Once you find an editor, do you stick with them for everything or do you kind of shop around depending on well, the book? Um, so the first book, as I said, was edited by this company. The second book was edited by a lady in the critique group that is an editor and she did a good job. But even she said afterwards that it's probably better to have somebody edit it that knows nothing about the book, which is what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So the third book, I found somebody else was recommended, and I was very happy um, with that. But then they stopped doing it, and I then found a fourth person who did a real good job on Discreetly Yours, and I was very happy with that. But that was a referral, and she helped me out on Discreetly 
she's helped me out on my latest book, but she's gone on to other things too. So mm. I had to find somebody else to finish off, off the editing on that. And there's a company that I stumbled across called selfpublishing.com and they do typesetting and they help with cover designs and things like that. And I might reach out to them next time for the editing, but I've got a great lady that's editing, um, not edited, done the cover design for my last two books. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy with what she's done. And she's working on my latest cover and she's come up with some great concepts. So we've talked about it and she's now coming up with the final product, which I should have before the end of the week. Nice. That's exciting. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious when you're registering with the Library of Congress, I mean, what is that like? Because I get annoyed going on the Wisconsin website just to get a fishing license once a year. So I can only, I imagine there's a little bit more red tape and, and quite a, a longer process you have to go through for registering a, a book with them. It's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating, and sadly, it's uh, because my books have come out in two years' intervals. And the first one was 2013, then 15, 17, and 19, and this one's just going to squeak in under 2021. It's tough because if it's something you're only doing every couple of years, you, you can't remember everything. The one I will say one thing about the Library of Congress: when you go to register, they do have a great helpline, and the people are super friendly and super helpful and they're very patient but it is quite a tedious process but you have to do it because two years ago the united states supreme court ruled that they will not listen to any cases if you haven't registered your work with the library of congress they will only look at cases if the work has actually been registered so now it's not a choice if you want to make sure that your work isn't stolen, you have to register it because no court's going to hear it otherwise. So, but yes, it's a bit of a pill. No, no question about that, Gordon. And I know what you're talking about with the with the fishing license. <laughs> and of course, you know everything's online, as we've talked about. You know, you can do it from your cell phone now, but. 90% of the time is I have severe ADD. I'll be out on the lake already and realize, ah, crap, I didn't do that. And trying to you know, sit here looking for cell service. <laughs> well, uh, as it happens this, this weekend with my business partner, myself, we're taking off to Lake Havasu in Arizona and we're going out fishing on Sunday. And the guy that owns the boat, you know, we, when we signed up, we said, what about fishing licenses? He says, oh, don't worry, I'll get that for you. And I thought, sure, that's a sign of relief. Because <laughs> I thought the last thing I want to do is go and have to start filling out all these forms with questions you don't always have the answers to or you don't understand the questions. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but with uh, book number five coming out here this year, can you share any a uh, little bit of a teaser or trailer about it yet or is it still under lock and key at this point no no it's um again something totally different when i finished uh, discreetly yours i spent two years writing about the the sin side of las vegas and and murder and blackmail and scheming and all that stuff 
And the book came out in July. And one night I just happened to be flicking channels on TV and they had Hallmark Christmas in July. And their stories always seem to have the same formula. You know, that's it's <laughs> somebody that's got a high power job and they've got to dash home for Christmas at the last minute and they fall in love with their childhood sweetheart and there's a big kiss at the end. It's always, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. People like it. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to try something different, something very warm and fuzzy. And I'm just going to write a warm, fuzzy Christmas book. So this book is about five people that are traveling on a helicopter somewhere for Christmas. And it just happens to crash outside this little town called Christmas Carol Village. And the DNA of the population is Christmas. And these five individuals, they all have issues that they're having to deal with in their personal lives and how the few days in this tiny little village with all these people living Christmas all year round changes their life and how it becomes a life-altering experience for these five individuals. So it's just warm, fuzzy, <laughs> frothy, feel-good book, hopefully. You know? There we go. And of course, where can people find your books? I know you're you're on Amazon. I, you're, I, I'll admit I haven't read them yet. It's on my to-do list. Just That's quite busy. all right. But they're in my queue. I am ready to go as soon as I get five minutes to sit down and breathe. <laughs> Which doesn't look like that's going to be any time soon from what right. earlier. Um, but they can go to my author website. It's uh, Stephen S-T-E-P-H-E-N murray m-u-r-r-a-y.com and it lists all the four books out there and you click on any of them they've each got their own websites well except the chapel the two chapel books share a website but you can then read the reviews and read the synopses and um you can buy any or all of the books or your listeners can if they're interested and i hope they are um that's the best place uh go and buy them and if they order them from the websites they just have to put a note in saying they want them signed or personalized and made from christmas gifts or wedding gifts or whatever um and i'll be happy to do it get them out one last question for me uh if there's an aspiring author out there listening and they're getting ready to finish their publish their first book, whatever the case may be, uh, what kind of advice would you offer them? Uh, a couple of things. Well, first, if they decide to self-publish, one thing I should have mentioned earlier is it is expensive. You have to pay all those upfront costs yourself. Um, but as the company that helped me with my first book said, you know, Stephen, if you go on a two-week cruise to Alaska or one-week cruise to Alaska, it's going to cost you 5000 bucks. If you self-publish this book, it's going to cost you something like that by the time you've paid for your website, the editing, printing, blah, blah, blah. But he said it's going to take you on a journey that you'll never imagine, and he was absolutely right. So anybody who decides to self-publish or is an aspiring author, I'd say go for it, and I think... The other thing is just if it's your dream, make it happen. And I think that doesn't just go for aspiring authors. I think it goes to anybody. You know, if you've got a dream, don't let anybody put you off it. Make it happen and 
we're in America where you can make your dreams come true. We still are the land of opportunity, I believe. And I'd say to your authors, go for it. Don't be deterred. Good. Oh, perfect. Thank you again, Stephen, for taking the time to be on the show with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate being on your program and I hope your listeners enjoyed as much as I enjoyed being on your program. I wish you both every success in the in your future endeavors as well. well thank thank you. you, sir. If you want to stick around just for a minute, we can talk about the logistics, but thank you everyone for tuning in this week. We will catch you next time. Thank you again for taking the time to tune in this week and in each and every week, whether you're on an audio-only platform or you're checking out the episode on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date on future guests, live recordings, and new episodes, go check out the show and make sure to follow or like on Facebook and Instagram, both at Rules of the Arena Podcast. And many of you have asked me, how can you help out? If you'd be so kind, head over to Apple Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you're listening, drop a review, make sure to leave a comment, and let me know what you think of the show. If you think it sucks, tell me. If you like it, make sure to tell your friends and family about it. And uh, good news is I do have a website up and running now. You can head over to rulesoftherenapodcast.com where you can see the full lineup of new lineup of sweatshirts t-shirts tank tops working on some other new cool stuff and right now i do have a limited design by cohen hamelswang from episode 49 and cohen and je collins photographer that will be released here shortly it was supposed to be out on october but just trying to wrap up a few things and last but not least make sure to go check out my other show called no story left behind you can follow nslb on facebook and instagram at no story left behind podcast all episodes are released on its own feed wherever you find podcasts. And I also have the episodes on YouTube as well under the ROA channel. Just click on the NSLB playlist. And if you have any questions, comments, show ideas, or would like to be a guest on the show, shoot me an email, Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, at blindninjastudios.com. Thank you again, and I will catch you next time.